0: All right, welcome everyone to Unsafe Space Book Club. Uh, I am your co-host Carter Laren, and I am joined by Carrie Smith and a whole bunch of other book club cl- book club members. Uh, howdy, everyone! Let me make sure I've got everyone here and can everyone can hear me and can uh, speak. Carrie, can you speak? Is everyone working?
1: uh i hello carter i'm just i hear you
0: okay good good
1: for anyone who is looking for the video if you want to see the chat while we're talking i had to do a search for unsafe space human diversity to find it because it wasn't showing up on the channel but you can find it there
0: yeah there's been some weird uh youtube things but it is on the community page of the youtube and all that but if you're listening to this you already know where it is so
1: yeah
0: um (laughs) All good. Welcome everyone. Thank you for joining. Uh, Tamara gets the official prize today. As the, uh, I think she's the only person who has been to all the book clubs now.
2: Woohoo, Tamara.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so welcome, Tamara. And maybe because because it's been you, Tamara, uh, who who wins the, the trophy, maybe you should kick us off. what do you think about this book? Uh,
2: I compared it to the bell curve which I have read as well. And he has very vague assertions that are thoroughly backed in science. He reserves making judgments. So it's, but he's still going to get attacked as one of the hate facts because there are issues. There were a few points that I did not 100% agree with him. I think one of them that I brought up to the group was we don't have really the full data on the impact of environment and versus genetics on IQ, because there are a lot of correlations between poverty and low intelligence. But when you're in the developing world, a couple of bouts of malaria can cause brain damage. Malnutrition is almost as bad as not getting you know, as starvation. Parasitic worm infections reduce your intelligence. And one of the things I flew in the group was, how the hook how a worm gave the sound a bad name. And we had a direct correlation between the more hookworm infections you have, the lower your intelligence. That was in a European mostly population that was some of blacks. And after they had a 1920s campaign, 1930s to get rid of the hookworm infection, intelligence went up. We're a hundred years later, and you still have a negative stereotype of Southerners is stupid. So there's some of the factors that he did not address in Curve and doesn't really address here. We, when he talks about nature versus nurture, genetics sets your potential, environment can absolutely limit it. we don't have enough information on how the environment can limit potential, we're just starting to get the data on how genetics can define your potential because there's large enough populations around the world to say You've got the best food, the best housing, the best medical care of any generation in human history. Now we can get the actual correlations between genetics and intelligence, and we're starting to tease out things like mental illness. But we really don't have all the data to know that as well as we could.
0: Yeah. I think that a great a great caveat here to all this stuff is that um, we. I, I get depressed that we look at... Um, Environmental factors, and say, well, we don't know how to increase intelligence or personality factors or all these things. But the truth is, we do know how to decrease a lot of that. And through a, a large part of the world, we do decrease a lot of them by by having malnutrition and all these factors that you're bringing up. That means people aren't living up to their potential. I think that's a really great caveat. I don't think Dr. Murray would disagree with that. Um, it's not addressed in these books, but I, I think it's a great point. You know
1: was that well, the most yeah, was that ahead. the most unsettling part for people because for me that's the part i i have the hardest part swallowing
3: which, which is part? that
1: um about about shared environment about environment having an impact on iq and on personality traits
0: it and sucks as a parent let me tell you <laughs> i don't want to swallow that at all <laughs> yeah
1: because i mean he does make the caveat that in early, the early years of a, of a baby of a child's life, that it does have an impact, but once they reach adolescence, shared environment doesn't have as much, so.
0: Um, yeah, and, and you see as they age, right, the correlation to genetics for a lot of these factors just increases over time, which also kind of sucks, right, Um, but yeah, I'm, but again, even with the parenting thing and the kids, we do know ways to hurt IQ, like you can, there's the adverse, adverse childhood experience score, which I know Gabor Mate has talked about and other people. Like if you have a high ACE score, different ACE than the ACE Charles Murray was talking about. But if you have an IACE sco- high ACE score, um, you don't, you know, you're, you're stunted. Uh, just things like breastfeeding. I think if you don't get breastfed, you can, lo- you can lose like one and a half IQ points. I'm sure malnutrition does can- a lot. Things like hookworm, all that stuff.
1: Can you define ACE for anyone listening?
0: it's the adverse childhood experience score. It's not the one ACE that's in this book. His, the ACE he talks about in this book um, is a totally different acronym, but I'm talking about that. It's an adverse childhood experience score. And it's a, uh, you fill out like, did you have a two parent home? Did you, was the one parent on, you know, did you have like, were, was drugs and alcohol in the home? Were you abused? Did you have enough food? And so you can, you can rate adverse childhood experiences. And then those do correlate to some pretty negative outcomes.
4: Yeah. And to that point, one of the things that it made me think of with the shared environment is I've actually seen and I would love to see Thomas Sowell talk to Charles Murray, because I've heard people bring up Charles Murray to Thomas Sowell and his um, studies on the Uh, differentiation with kids. I mean, whether you're first born, second born, third born, if you're a twin, what happens there? If you're a twin, but that one of the twins dies early on, that changes a lot of things. So I I think that there definitely are things that happen very early on. I think there's a lot of evidence of that. Um, But like to Carrie's point, the shared environment as we get older, I think so much of that is what happens early on and how they, how quickly they learn language. How many books are in the house? Do you have a library card in the house? That was even a correlation. So I think a lot of those things get imprinted very early and probably make a big difference in the long run. And it also reminds me of those kids who were, um, there was a, a bunch of kids in Russia after the Soviet Union broke down and there was a lot of alcoholism And a lot of abandoned kids and a lot of these kids grew up on the streets. Some of them uh, were even feral kids who grew up amongst animals. And they actually found some kids who ran with packs of dogs for most of their young life. And once they get them out of that situation and try to help them out, it's too late for a lot of things. They never learn language. They never learn certain cultural um, expectations that we have. So I think so much of that stuff does matter early on, um, that, but that's probably why it doesn't matter as much in the long run. Because I think there's certain tipping points to where things have to be learned early on, or you just lose that um, opportunity. That window.
0: Yeah. yeah, and and I think Murray does fo- like there's a universe of traits that we could categorize as personality traits. Um, or as he would say, cognitive repertoire. Um, but he's focusing on the co- like many of those cognitive repertoire traits that are genetic because that's what he's interested in. Um, but I think there's probably a whole bunch of other traits that aren't really that genetic, or at least there's that other component that you're talking about. It's like, okay, well, yeah, if you're raised with dogs, like something's wrong, or or just, or just things can get broken. Maybe it's just that things can get broken. We know how to break things really well. But we don't really know much beyond that, um, which is also sad, but
2: a lot of this book strikes me as he's having to argue against the predominant theory of the blank slate theory that every kid is equally smart, equally creative. You see the stuff of everybody's totally creative. Okay, little kids taking various items and repurposing them as just swords and guns and playing house, that's normal play behavior. But we're lying to ourselves that every kid can be an astronaut, a doctor, and a lawyer. And how much of the college system is screwed up because we lie and say everybody can be a genius, everybody can be a doctor when we should do some of the stuff that Germany and Sweden does. and says, Based on your IQ, based on your academic ability, you can't be a doctor, but you might be a nurse. And then put more vocational training, vocational support to the middle level instead of say, pretending everybody's a genius and let's maximize it.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it does it does everyone a disservice. And in the U.S., I think, I mean, this is the other thing that I think is is fascinating from like a just looking at the elitist um, class perpetuation in the U.S. One way that you keep classes ensconced is by having universities and outlawing IQ tests, right? Like you can't have an IQ test as an employer or anything. You can't just do very simple stuff as an employer. You're not allowed to base your hiring off of that. If you could, you might not care whether they went to Stanford, but the the universities act as proxies for IQ tests. But they're not perfect proxies because they're very expensive and it, they're only accessible to a certain uh, amount, you know, people with a certain amount of wealth in society. So it's actually outlawing IQ tests. I think the it's again, when you're when you look at stuff, when you're afraid of facts and you and you knee jerk react, I think people were afraid of facts like, uh oh, if we allow IQ tests, this will be used. Against people that we want to protect somehow, and in actuality, it's probably hurting those people um because they could you know an i q test is a great way to to measure someone's potential who didn't have some of the upbringing that um that is afforded to like an upper middle class family who can send their kids to private schools in Stanford and all that kind of stuff uh but at the same i guess i guess we we do that to perpetuate the classism and then we and then we continue to ignore any uh correlation between iq and anything other than upbringing i really liked i really liked charles murray's observation that it's the elitist liberals who really want to be proud of their own iq and think it was something that they worked to get rather than something that they inherited yeah that and i really enjoyed i mean that
4: the whole interview was great and i really enjoyed the idea that People pretend that it's offensive to look at things like this, but in their own lives, they're doing all of those things. So I didn't marry my wife because she's just cute and really dumb. You know, I took the time to think about who am I going to want to be the mother of my kids? And I know that part of it's inherited and I know that part of it's environmental but there's nothing wrong with seeking out smart people with whom you want to have children. And we do it all the time. And people in those environments do it all the time and they continuously live in a manner in which they tell everybody else, it doesn't matter. Yep. I think
2: yeah. New York Post or New York times did an article on luxury beliefs of the latest status symbol for the elite and saying, if- White privilege, the liberals, it's the, we have to pretend everybody's equal because egalitarianism and equality equals fairness is the most important virtue for liberal, many liberals. So they have to pretend I'm just lucky or I'm privileged because of my race and ignores, and I'll bring up William Shutterley's example. He's a communist, he's somebody I know because I reviewed his book the making of a social justice warrior, discussing the rise of the identity politics going back to 20 years, that he noticed as a communist. And one of his criticisms was, you know, you're mistaking classism for racism, and while there's certain, some correlations of blacks were likely before, the white privilege belief lets the liberal whites look down on poor whites By going, well, why didn't you get your white privilege? You must be stupid. So they can pretend, well, I'm smarter and I'm better. So it feeds into those beliefs of the elitism. And then I'm a white savior saving the oppressed minorities. While some of the ethnic minorities that are in the elite can benefit from it and thus want to go, I'm better than you. And then move on it fits
0: everybody's narratives unless they get to oppress you in the name of fairness. Yeah. One thing that has always kind of struck me, and I mentioned this in our interview to, with Charles Murray, but one thing that is, is, has struck me is that we, we tend to conflate a lot of these characteristics. I mean, I think the, the reason that he's hated is precisely because a lot of these characteristics, we really ascribe moral st- Um, standards to or like standards of value to where it's like oh if you're this personality or if you're these this kind of iq you're better than someone who's this other personality and a lower iq and um that i i remember when first reading uh bell curve and then um and then listening to some other people talk about it coming to this realization that like (laughs) being being proud of your iq is like being proud of your height or like it doesn't make any sense you have nothing to do with it and it's not a moral thing and um and i think that's uh i think and and you know as i raise my daughter that's one of the things i try and are and like really push forward is like how smart she is isn't 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 a measure of how good she is. Like her behavior is a measure of how good she is. Like what she does is is a measure of how good, because I don't know how smart she'll turn out to be either way anyway, but I I don't know. It's weird. There's a lot of, there's a huge part of society that these ideas are toxic because they ascribe moral value to them all.
3: They do.
1: That's interesting because my pastor, in his sermon today, he was talking about racism is a form of, Lazy self-righteousness—it's self-righteousness for underachievers because it's something you—you you were born into your race. It's nothing you did. It's—it's it's the same thing right. for uh, height or any other anything that you were born with, your sex or whatever. So being proud of something that you had the control zero over zero to do
0: with. Yeah, yeah I, I guess I, it gets I, a I little it secondhand self-esteem, right? It's self-esteem, <laughs> self-esteem that's self-esteem. borrowed secondhand from other people. <laughs>
1: right. But I think it gets a little more. It's a little different when you're talking about um, maybe natural th- things that are based in both in both genetics and in environment, like a, like personality traits or some of the things in this book. Because, look, like, if you look at if you look at someone, I was trying to think about is there any other is there any other area where we we assume that if you talk about differences, on average between groups that there's we're saying there's some kind of moral superiority. So for example, in sports, I think if you're talking about someone who's really good at basketball or if you talk about groups and you say on average the the people at the high end of ability when it comes to basketball are less likely to be Jewish or more likely right. or or people to talk about be black being great
0: marathoners, right? It's like Right, no one more canters. like Right
1: no one no one thinks that you're saying Kenyans are superior. Right. Um as human beings it's like uh we don't do the same thing and I, and I but but maybe in some areas we do. Do we do that with do we do that with talent in music or things like that because someone could be born with an innate gift for music but then pair that with a lot of hard work to actually get to a place
0: of no, I think we do. I mean, look why this is why we listen to celebrities opinion on various things like they're they're good looking and good actors or mostly just good looking, frankly. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, and therefore we listen to them like that doesn't mean that they're right. That's not good looking isn't an argument, uh, but we certainly give them special credit for being hot.
4: Well, and to Carrie's point, I think there are some things that we ascribe that are positive to, to some groups that we're not supposed to always say. It's very often saying things like um, if someone says, well, they're Asian, maybe they're probably good at math. Or somebody says, well, maybe he's a really great programmer because he's from India. You know, those things I wouldn't I wouldn't expect to be accepted acceptable to say necessarily. And they don't necessarily apply to a whole group, but they're not themselves negative aspects of a person's personality. Being good at math isn't bad, but if you assume somebody is good at math because of their race, that's where people would probably push back.
0: Well, I think there I think you're hitting on like I'm glad he has a appendix for statistics. I think he even titles it like statistics for people who don't think they can learn statistics because <laughs> I think a lot of the pushback on a lot of this stuff is you, you know, you speak in, when you're speaking about a group, uh, you're making very broad statistical statements and so many people get wrapped around the axle that like you're saying all X or Y. And it's like, no, I'm and in fact, the overlap I'm talking about is minuscule, but it does show up if you're measuring tens of millions of people but it's still minuscule. Um, and I think stats would solve a lot of that. I, I think frankly stats would solve maybe 50% of the outrage. that we Yeah,
1: people definitely don't understand. I don't think we teach what averages mean. And that we don't no. teach bell curves and and the amount or, that they overlap
0: standard deviations or like what does a high hmm. variance like he's got a he's got a one of his appendices he talks about the high variance of male intelligence relative to female intelligence and it's like okay well what does that mean well it might mean that you see more Nobel winning physicists men and more homeless men that's might <laughs> what it means and it turns out you do see both of those <laughs> like that's yeah. true. I
4: think my favorite example is when people don't get wrapped up around height too much. And when you say the standard deviation for height is X um, and you say, well, most men are taller than most women. We all know that we accept it. No one has a problem with it. Um, But we all know that some men are shorter than some women. Yeah, no problem. So when you look at people, Who are six foot one, they the men outnumber the women probably 10 to 1. Yeah, that's probably fair. How about six foot five, six foot seven, Mm -hmm. six foot ten? It's the same thing. You know, it's just an over there's most of us are very similar, but the tail end of those extremes are where things stand out. And if you've got to be six foot five, six foot ten to play basketball then most people who play basketball at that level are going to be men. And this brings up a beef that I've got with you, Carter. Uh, <laughs> I noticed during the interview. Beefs
0: basketball are great, so let's go.
4: <laughs> I noticed in the interview you said, yeah, you know, some people are Spud Webb. And it amazed me that you remembered Spud Webb when I told Gabe when I when I said that you were going hard in the paint on one of my super
0: chats you had no idea what that he was. had no idea no, no, I no. <laughs> I was like,
4: how do you not know both of those they're both basketball
0: because I was just tangentially related like I didn't follow basketball but growing up but because okay. I'm short actually that's oh, why I know uh, okay. because I'm short um I'm one of the people that like yeah but that guy's not taller than all women like yeah that's me right um and uh, so Spud Webb, like, his existence in the NBA was a big deal to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> you caused me to look up Spud Webb and uh, to see five, pictures. Five. Yeah, and I watched him do a lot of slam dunks. And he's, yeah, 5'5". Five, five. That's just one inch taller than me.
3: And he was floated up there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I I spent, like, many, I think there were many Saturday afternoons in our driveway with me convincing myself that I should be able to dunk also because he can dunk. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think I, I maybe touched the net a couple times, but that was, that And to bring, it,
4: to bring it. it full circle, the human diversity, you know what? Maybe there is some genetic difference between
0: uh, you and Spud Webb when it comes to jumping. <laughs> Look, the guy's got like magical springy uh, legs. So yeah, I get that. That's uh, that's totally, totally true. Um, yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, to bring it back, I just uh, I do think it's tough because a lot of people get their self-esteem through traits that they through through something that required no work of their own. Um, And so it's threatening to them to tell them this is genetic. Um, And, you know, the thing I was thinking about more generally, maybe maybe we can see what you guys think about this. Humans. We used to have like two hundred a couple hundred people in our friends' circles. Like those were our community sizes. Friend, I'll say friends' circle, like our communities were tiny, right? Um, and so they were necessarily much more both genetically homogeneous, uh, homogeneous and uh, homogenous and um, just culturally homogenous. Like we all have the same customs and we're like things, our standards were the same, even if they're not genetic. It was a very small group. And I think, you know. If you're going to try the Enlightenment experiment, which clearly I am in love with, um, and you're going to have all different people come in with different genetics and different cultures and different standards and different ways of doing things, um, you really can't bear your hand in head in the sand when it comes to actual differences between those groups, and lament when you see outcomes that are that are different. Like they, there are differences between groups, and to try and pretend that if we just say, hey, let's all have a society based on ostensibly a meritocracy, although we're not quite there, but whatever, let's have a society based on individual rights and let's see like let the chips fall where they may. Because humans are different, you would expect some people to be, you know, fitting some stereotypes. Maybe Asians are better at math on average. I don't know. That's true, but like. Maybe you are going to have more Jewish bankers than you are other people. Well, maybe you're going to have singers that are a certain gender or race or whatever. Like all that stuff is going to happen. Um, and I think it's extremely dangerous to try and have a an enlightenment-based society and <laughs> actively ignore the reality of the differences between people because – Otherwise, you, you end up with this conclusion that something's wrong with our society. Because there's a difference, automatically there's some evil that we have to go root out. And it becomes a McCarthyism, which is an insult to McCarthy, actually. But it becomes like a McCarthyism for, it's like it's not a witch hunt. It's a witch hunt for evil that may not exist because you're just burying your head in the sand about differences between people. We
2: have right. such a diverse society that we're getting much more tribal and identity politics imposes that. And that's why we had the Black Attorney General, who's in an interracial marriage, get demonized as racist. No, he's Black. And then they went, he's skinfolk, but not kinfolk. That's like saying he's in a false state. He's not a member of the tribe. He may be Black, but he's a traitor. So you don't have to respect him or protect him as a Black. So he's a fair target to go after he betrayed the tribe, get him. So we're seeing- Yeah, he
0: becomes a, a traitor. Yeah.
2: We get a, we're seeing a convergence back to you know, when you had a fairly homogeneous majority and trickling in of minority groups, Italians, Poles, Mexicans, then you come in and you get you know, Lithuanian Jews and Chinese and you get a slow trickle that could assimilate you had a generalizing of the popular culture helped by general, by mass media. And then now that you've had flood, floods of immigration reinforcing existing groups and bringing in new ones in enough communities to form their own communities, like the Somalis in Minnesota, now you get a reversion to tribalism. And a lot of the social justice stuff is saying, your identity is tied to your demographics your demographics are your identity you are morally obligated to live out your stereotype to prove you're a member of the tribe because we don't want a buddhist white guy well maybe they'll tolerate that but you can't be native american and buddhist you can't be cuban and jewish we want everybody to fit in this narrow mold and it's a reversion to the really old tribalism like Judaism being both an ethnicity and a religion. And yeah, it's like 10% overlap each way, if 10% are about converts and mostly to marriage. And about 10% of Jews or Buddhist or atheist instead, but it's a really strong correlation. And now we're seeing a push back to the tribal morality. Uh, I think Jonathan Craig could talk about that one of the prior books, of you have to live this stereotype, you have to be this way. So we even see this in the college admissions. The black kid who says, I want to be an investment banker doesn't get the scholarships of the one who says, I want to be an activist. I'm living out these appropriate lived experiences. You know, we're kind of going, nobody can be in the middle. You have to be in your channel. And that makes society safe so that I can look at you and based on your uniform and your demographics, know who you are and what you're doing, that's simpler. Go stay in your safe space and don't come out unless it's very strict rules. So we're getting a version back to when you look at some of the Mexican villages and everybody's got their own uniform and have your own uniform on the bright blue outfits and the girls in the pink dresses or your tartan patterns in Scotland going, here's my uniform, you know my identity, you know my tribe, you know my faith just by looking at you. And we're seeing a societal reversion to that tribalism for various groups, and then pushing people one way or the other because we don't really want the diversity or we want the superficial cultural diversity, but we don't want to have individual choice because that erodes the protective tribe because each tribe wants to be strong. Historically, the more cohesive group, if you have two groups of similar sizes, the more cohesive group wins over the more divided one. And when you've got democracy with diverse groups, you get something akin to Nigeria. Everybody votes their tribe. And the Democrats are saying, everybody unite the tribe so that we can have our little groups and organize the groups into the umbrella. And that's the basis. And then demonize everybody else.
0: Right, right. Sorry. I do wonder sometimes, not to give you a downer, but I do wonder sometimes if there's such a innate propensity for tribalism in humans that we're going to have to find some safety valve if we're going to have a society that we don't want people to be tribal in normally. We need an outlet for that tribalism in some way. I saw—I used to wonder if sports, sports. were that outfit, outlet, sports. right? We're like, yeah, here's our tribalism. We can like, uh, you know, we can have a team or if like, you know, Tamara, Thomas and I are all Pittsburgh Penguins fans and Manny and Keith and Carrie are all New Jersey Devils fans. We can hate on each other, but go out for beers afterwards and like have that tribalism that we want, um, where it doesn't, but it doesn't actually affect our lives in a meaningful way. It just becomes symbolic.
4: The things I worry about with uh, sports disappearing, cause I'm not a huge sports fan, but I do see how connected people of all different kinds are. And now that we're worried about whether or not people that smash each other in the head are going to catch COVID, um, I'm worried about, <laughs> you know how, how ironic is that? <laughs> we can't play football. We, we might get a, a really bad infection. So I'm um,
1: <laughs> Never mind all the problems we're doing. I know. TBI, hey,
4: you're good, but don't catch COVID. Yeah. Um, brain damage didn't stop
0: us but covid will (laughs)
4: exactly um and similar to that um, i think the military service is a really good way of bringing a lot of people from different areas together um and that's one of the things i see in israel and not that i would say we should do that here in america because most of the people that don't want to be in the military i don't want them in the military But and we are way too big to have everybody do that kind of service. But I think something along those lines where all these people from different places and different classes and different colors and whatever um, come together and have to do something like that. I think that's really helpful.
0: Yeah. But you don't think it's sports. Oh, no, I, I think
4: sports is also a really good thing. I'm just worried about what's happening to sports now because it's getting politicized and people are moving away from it. Uh-huh. And the, the problem with um, COVID also shutting it down. So that's one more thing that we can't all get along with.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that that is... Uh, I wonder if sports... Uh, there's going to have to be another outlet. And I guess it could be people produce their own parallel sporting tribal events somehow um or Dungeons and Dragons they join Antifa or they they do something else as in what?
1: Dun- Dungeons and Dragons.
0: Right. We have a and d group now. Uh so that's although our our D group no one that's uh on the channel right Ooh. now is in the group but I will say we don't actually represent the very cohesive tribe so I don't know if <laughs> that well. <laughs>
1: So did anybody else have, I know we started with uh, Carter, you asked a question of general thoughts on the book of Tamara. Did anybody else have any uh, general or broad thoughts that they wanted to share about it? Or maybe a particular part that, like I said, there was a part that didn't sit well with me and was there any part that gave you concern? Um.
4: I, I thought that, and you guys brought this up a little bit on the interview, um, every time I read a book like this, um, where that has so much spacking in science that I can go and look up myself, which much, much of it I did, um, similar to what De- Dr. Deborah So has put out with um, the um, her gender book, I forgot what it's called. Um, it's very similar to that. It amazes me how contentious these ideas are and it underlines or underscores the fact for me that there's a lot of things going on in academia that people are kind of being really hush-hush about and i don't understand how it's not getting out into the public and becoming just kind of normal knowledge i kind of know how Um, But I'm still amazed at the cognitive dissonance between what we are starting to learn and what people actually think is their truth or their common sense. And I'm really curious what the thing or things are going to be like with some of the SNPs. Um, Is that what it was called, Carter? You guys talked about yeah, the
0: SNPs. Yeah, yeah, the polygenic stuff. Yeah, yeah.
4: how long is going to take for that to come out? And I had I had listened to, after reading The Bell Curve, I listened to a podcast that had to do with IQ. It was a whole series. And one of the things that they did is they talked to a company that helps people do maybe IVF or whatever it is. I, I don't remember that what specifically it was, but the parents were able to choose the gender of the fertilized eggs that they were going to have implanted. And this company was going beyond that. They were actually testing a lot of the genetics for markers that they already knew um, gave rise to other traits. And it was funny when they were interviewing this guy, it was, he was, you can tell he was kind of hush-hush. He didn't want to say too much because they were asking about intelligence. Um, but it, he, it gave me the impression that there are companies out there that are utilizing this information to start testing these things for intelligence before they actually get implanted um and that cause that brings up a whole lot of other things which i think is some of the the stuff people push back against because they're worried about that happening but it also does mean that those things are real because if people are testing it and it's coming true um it's much more than just saying high iq is related later on in life to success in various different ways. This is literally saying here are some genes that we think um, create this type of trait and that person ends up with that trait every single time and you can pay for it. So at some point, all of this um, contention about, well, it's not real, you're just pushing this you're a eugenicist, Um, you're a white nationalist. I went to the SPLC page about him, God, that was horrible. Um, wasn't
0: it bad it was so bad
4: but um at some point it's gonna be like guys you're on the wrong side of science you know if science is real in your house you better start paying attention to this stuff it's not everything but it does make a difference
0: yeah i mean the thing that gives me heartburn by the way is that like all this aversion to this subject is uniquely western i can tell you right now china doesn't give a crap about your feelings about these things they are intent they will intentionally engineer the highest IQ people that they can, and they have no qualms about it. They don't if someone says, "I've got a IVF method to test X, y, and Z, and we think we can do a, B, and C to, you know, basically implement eugenics, no one will bat an eye. There's no one protesting, there's no one will care. They'll be like, "Great, thanks. We want a smarter population like that. Okay, cool. <laughs>
4: yeah, right, exactly.
0: right. And I don't think it's going to take very long. I mean, you can imagine, Four, five, six generations later, of that being implemented, when we're just not even in the same category as China anymore. Like the the rest of the world is just.
4: Jason important. Bourne's, and we're over here just trying to make sure everybody. <laughs> exactly. <everybody's laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what? You know what? They're really smart and they're really talented and they can do this and that, but we're really super nice and aware of um, feelings and empathetic. It's exactly.
0: They're going to beat the
4: crap out of us now. We're
0: very we're all, sensitive. Um, yeah, we're very sensitive. <laughs> We bred for being we bred the uh the gene for being offended very easily, <laughs>
5: yeah. It's like okay, <laughs> good luck. It's like it could yeah. be a
0: version of
6: what natural selection does, but could happen in just a couple generations. They start wild scale, maybe they'll go yeah. from 105 to 115 average IQ in
0: a couple generations.
6: But that's that a big difference. Competitiveness,
0: yeah, yeah. The thing that the thing that I think is, I mean, not we can we can run. We can get into territory that's extremely dangerous, but like the thing that I don't like is this, this idea that you can't talk about these things without being accused of like eugenic, like, Oh, you're eugenicist or you're this, or you're that. The truth is no matter what environment we're in, there are pressures evolutionarily to push us towards some optimization for that environment. And so talking about the fact that, Hey, there are pressures that optimize for a certain thing. Should we worry about that and maybe make sure they're optimizing for something better? Like that's not a that's not a conversation that only evil Nazis have. That's a conversation that people who recognize the truth of some of this have and say, Okay, well, we are pushing like there there are things happening right now. Um, we're, we're optimizing for a certain thing right now. Should is that the right thing to optimize for as a society? A good example, and I don't mean using force because you know me. right not
1: force. a good example is um i would say th- the we know that children on average do better when they have both parents in the home and at the same time some would argue and i think they have very make very good arguments that our government is creating an incentive not to have parents in the home both parents in mm-hmm. the home for many people and that that it's almost like when we have policies or laws that are passed or programs that we adopt with good intention i think sometimes we have trouble then looking at the results and measuring what are the consequences and what kind of incentives did we set up and did we do disincentives as well or you know we we have trouble looking at the outcome because we're just focused on the intent of things
4: that reminds me of what Carter just said to where, what if somewhere in another country, they say, whatever, we're going to optimize for this thing um, and beat America out. Now, what you said, Kerry, is happening actually within America amongst groups to where they're saying, well, we can dis- we can disincentivize, we can incentivize behavior that puts people in harm's way. And then also this other group, we're going to we're gonna actually act in a very different way. So it's like they're pulling those two things together. You know, it kind of reminds me of what he was saying in the bell curve with pulling people with different uh, higher IQs into those areas, or even with coming apart, how things are getting separated because they're incentivizing some of the bad behavior, but also incentivizing those who can to do even better and pull further and further apart. Yes,
1: it's weird. It's like uh, the part of the discussion with, with uh, Dr. Murray when we were talking about, I think we were talking about this topic, but about how there is this tendency of of elite, usually leftist, uh, in in terms of belief system, elite leftist people who uh, will preach that all of these things are okay and good and you shouldn't criticize them, yet they don't live that way themselves. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, we shouldn't criticize uh, a destruction of the nuclear family and you know you don't we it it, it it would be bigoted or somehow somehow bigoted or wrong or hurt people's feelings to speak the truth that kids do better with both parents in the home on average um but they have both parents in the home you know it's like it's, it's one rule for thee and another another for me it's weird
6: you know, on on iq is an example of one rule for me like they wouldn't make IQ testing for an employer illegal if they didn't know it worked. Like that proves they know it worked. Right. If, if they actually thought it didn't know it worked, then they wouldn't make a rule about it and nobody, people would try it. Other people would, and then they would stop using it. It means they They'd know it being be worked.
0: afraid. They wouldn't be afraid of it.
6: Yeah. That's and, why and they're and not afraid of,
4: of the inherent bias test because that doesn't work. Yeah. And, and
6: there is, isn't. A- <laughs> Yeah. In the current bias test. I don't know if you guys know about the exception, but there is one exception in the U.S. It's widespread IQ test. Military. The military, to get into any branch of the U.S. military, they do a test, and they're measuring G. I looked it up when I was reading this book. Like, that's what they're trying to measure, G, what he talks about. Yeah, in the book.
0: some, you know, There's, I don't know if you know this, IQ but man. some law enforcement does it as well, they're allowed to. But they but have a ceiling. They you have a ceiling. You can't be uh you can't be a cop if it's above a certain amount because they're worried that you'll leave and go on to be in the fbi or something and that yeah uh, oh
6: okay i thought it was <laughs> like what, what is the ceiling 85. <laughs>
4: no i don't, I don't know oh, that hurts <laughs> I'm yeah sorry. here's a I'm I'm sorry, just i just looked look that you. up i don't agree with that i was
1: I was, just... I was trying to remember uh where that was but this is an article from the year 2000 court okays barring high iqs for cops Right. This was in Connecticut, uh, and it was about a man who tried to become a police officer, but he was rejected after he scored too high on an IQ test. <laughs> they
0: don't he say lost. how high he scored, though.
1: <laughs> but he lost his appeal in a federal lawsuit against the city.
6: Yeah, I'm curious what his score was. Yeah. It doesn't have the number?
1: Uh, what his score is? Let me see. But it's it's interesting.
0: I mean, I, I saw someone in, in yeah, the... He- Go ahead. Do you have a number?
1: He scored thirty three points, the equivalent of an IQ of one twenty five.
0: Oh, so that's and not even like a that's genius, like genius I, level. That's, I know, that's smart above average. <laughs> but
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> above average, but it's not you know I mean, crazy right. it's more out than there. a standard
0: deviation above average. But yeah. but it's not like but he's so, not going to go be Oppenheimer.
1: So they, <laughs> this particular police department, uh, would only accept candidates who scored twenty to twenty seven points. On the theory that those who scored too high could get bored with the police work and leave soon after
6: yeah well i mean that may be maybe they true. found that was true yeah. the, the military I mean, the the equivalent of what they measure the i forgot the name of the test but they're bad too they the it's a it's about 85 it's equivalent to about 85 and what they say is that over the years they've found that someone with an IQ below 85 can't be assigned to anything in the military that makes them worth the expense of having them. And, right, and that right. includes like collecting the trash, I guess.
4: Right? Yeah.
6: And they the trash in the yeah. They're saying it's not worth it.
4: Yeah. And they, they utilize a lot of those scores because they, they break them up into different aptitude tests that, that you can correlate to IQ. Um, and they use that to help assign your job. So, um, anything from mm. infantry—no offense to my buddies—anything um, from infantry to being a nuclear tech in a submarine. Um, you've got to understand a lot of different types of things and have different aptitudes and apparently work. So um, that, like, like you said, it—the proof is in the pudding because they use those scores; they actually work, so they mean something. Yep,
6: and it's—it's it's a not for not for you we believe it we're going to use it and you're not allowed there's
1: also just to get back to that idea of how we seem to as a society give this undue uh, uh, moral value to certain traits like iq um and not to others and there's when we do that we also tend to, because we're giving it an inherent positive or superiority or we're viewing a higher IQ as superior in some way, but it ignores the fact that a lot of people uh, that are on that very high end of IQ uh, do, it does cause problems for them for some, you know, it's not always a positive thing. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the best employee or you're going to be able to relate to and get along with others, or it's not a, I don't, I wouldn't say, I know, I know they say IQ is one of the predictors of success, but it's also, you can have an IQ that it really inhibits your, your success.
6: Dr. Murray brought up yeah. that it can be a requirement in some places. So if you look at, you know, Harvard professors, CEOs of top companies, whatever, lawyers, engineers, they tend to have a higher IQ, but it doesn't mean that everyone with a high IQ is going to become an engineer or the president, you know, um, he—I yeah. like this example you brought up of the linebacker. He said, "Yeah, you know, it is actually a requirement, and it helps to be strong and heavy to be a linebacker. But the best linebacker on the team isn't the heaviest one. But you got to be over three hundred pounds, or you can't even be in the game. Right? You can't compete. Oh, it, yeah. it's the same with IQ. So if you start looking at individual examples, there's always the weird genius dweeb that." you can't even talk to right um but they're kind of outliners he said several times i think in the interview and in the books that iq is actually the best predictor for a whole bunch of different measures of success from career success to marriage length yeah IQ is the number one thing that is now known
4: And yeah, predict- then i wonder if people would say well that's the problem we shouldn't live in a society where so much is Um, based on something that you didn't yourself earn, you're just lucky to have a good IQ, lucky to have good parents. So what about everyone else? Should we just forget about them? Which, you know, I I think there's a lot more opportunities out there for people regardless of what their IQ is within certain ranges. But I think that's a fair question to ask.
6: How do we celebrate it? Like, Okay, so you shouldn't feel proud of a high IQ. It's like, I get that. That's like being proud of being 300 pounds when you're a linebacker. You can be proud that you used your innate physical ability and worked out hard your whole life and became good at that. You can be proud of doing a scientific achievement. So you say, okay, just consider yourself lucky. But it still is a merit. It still should be celebrated. Just like we celebrate a six-eight guy on the NBA. I don't, but Americans do. <laughs> I could care less, but that is, it's a society. It's okay to celebrate that. You can say that this guy's just amazing. He's seven foot tall. He's amazing. We're allowed to celebrate that. And like, that's luck too, right? It's the same as IQ. Why can't we celebrate
0: high IQ in a a kid? No, I think you can celebrate it. You just doesn't, it's just not a moral Mm -hmm. thing, right? So you can be like, yeah, this is amazing. This is an amazing talent and an amazing gift it doesn't make you a good person. You might turn out to be an evil genius and be horribly like... Now, incidentally, IQ actually, if I recall from the bell curve, it's also correlated to morality in weird, weird way. So like, probably the evil genius is a little bit of a Hollywood fantasy, but um, I, what I'd like to see teased out, and I, I don't remember the reference to this, but I vaguely recall something about this with respect to the study on CEOs. I'd like to see teased out the difference between being, let's say, two standard deviations above the mean and like a stone cold 180 genius. My guess is that there's a sweet spot for IQ somewhere between 125 and 145 that is very successful and that beyond that, it's just a guess. But beyond that is where you start to see breakdown of the ability to communicate with enough people and to relate to people in a way that makes them capable of rising to CEO level. They might rise to like a very specific scientific endeavor. They might be excellent scientists somewhere, but I, I think because CEOs have weird traits, right? They have a much higher incidence of psychopathy. Um, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are necessary to be CEOs um, and I think one of them is relatability to, uh, you know, more average people. And I, I'm just wondering, I'm curious if, like, does the 180 IQ guy just have a really hard time talking to the person at the checkout? Whereas I think the, so. The 140 yes. guy is like, <laughs> eh, I know how to relate to you. Still, I mean, I'm two, over two standard deviations above you, but I can still relate to you, right? Like, <laughs> I think it's possible. you Can typically
3: relate to people plus or minus two standard. IQ points, So when they're at three and four sigma of IQ, that is a very common, but they did find that the sweet spot for violent crime is around an IQ of 90, 85 to 90, and you know, it's kind of like, if you're a whole lot higher on intelligence, if you want to be a thief, you're going to be selling whole life insurance, or used cars, or um, Bernie Madoff sales, Bernie Madoff sales funnels based on you know my wealth building program. You find legitimate ways to rip people off
4: without getting
0: in trouble, Instead <laughs> right. of legitimate t- ripoff, chairman <laughs> <laughs> of the <laughs> Fed,
5: when you I'm know, that senator, kind of stuff.
6: I mean, that's the example I was using. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, if you have an IQ of 105, you want to be a criminal, be a senator. Like, they're, yeah. they're not that, that, isn't the people pickpocketing, right. Right. 80, 80 IQ people become
0: pickpockets.
6: Yeah. Right. And, and, and below, below that, they,
0: I guess they just can't even do, like they, they're not even functional enough to be criminals. Is that the...
6: No, it's the propensity for violence drops. Like, like Camera said, 85, yeah, you're saying it's 85 to 90. I just remember 85, I don't remember the number perfectly, but it's around there is the peak of the violent crime. And it drops off equally in both sides. It's a bell curve, drops off equally.
1: What What were you saying, Manny?
5: No, no, I was going to say that one of the things we do and talking about IQ is as, as humans, we are always trying to compare each other or to put like some way of measuring it. that's where the IQ comes in, right? We sort of value ourselves or people value us based on some measure that's been come up with, like an IQ, which like you said, is great, but it's not something that you necessarily work for necessarily, right? But r- what's more important really is what you do with whatever ability you were born with. That's the really important thing. And unfortunately, the society, the, the world we live in, sometimes don't look at that, right? They look at things like IQ by itself and say, well, this guy is good and this guy is not as good. And that should never be that way. You know, it's, yep. but, you
0: do, know, it's, I, uh, it's hard. Do they do that? I was actually wondering as you're saying, because I agree with what you're saying, but I'm now wondering, like, do they do that? Because I definitely have seen people despise smart people who are wasting their talent like actually any talented person yeah. who's wasting their talent their friends and family t- tend to like be hard on them for wasting their gifts right um like their standards are higher um and i know i've i've had people in my life that i've had my like a rocky relationship with because i i felt like they had talents that were uh they gave them a lot more potential but they were just sitting on the couch playing video games or doing whatever they're doing, like drinking their life away or whatever it was. And like, I'm, whereas someone who's an IQ of 85, if they're holding down a job at the 7-Eleven and sitting on the couch playing video games the rest of the time, like I'm not, I'm going to leave them alone. But someone with an IQ of 150 who's doing that is going to get an earful from me. It's isn't like that had- a,
6: from each according to his ability, to each according to his need? <laughs> well-
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a communist secretly.
1: <laughs> it's, it is. It is. Uh, I think you're right. I think people are a little more harsh for good reason because they have, when they see someone talented who's wasting it, because they want the best for that person, and um, sometimes things just get in people's way. You know, I worked in comedy, as some of you know, and there's a comedian that I know who he he's, I mean, if you ask other comedians like well-known comedians, A-list comedians that people consider to be really good about this guy they will tell you he's the funniest comedian. He's the most talented, they all know who he is but most of the public doesn't know who he is because in a way I think he was so talented or he is so talented that the, it would be easy to go on stage and just kill and Brilliant. just have an audience cracking up without having to work hard for it. So we never, it's almost like not putting in the same amount of work as people who were maybe less talented innately, but really worked their butts off to get somewhere, you know? And looking at that, it's like, what is standing in your way? Cause you have this innate talent, but in some ways it's almost set you up for failure because you haven't had the experience of having to work hard. I know I've read studies about how gifted kids are sometimes, um, have a problem with, with putting in work and and also have a problem with committing to things because if it doesn't come naturally easy to them, like whatever their gift is that they expect everything. Like if I'm, if I'm talented in this area and it just comes naturally to me, and then this other thing I'm trying doesn't, well, I can't, I don't, I'm just going to give that up because I, I'm, I've I'm, got this expectation that it should just be easy, you know, without putting in a lot of work.
0: Yeah, that's hundred percent kind of true. No, that's a hundred percent true, Carrie. And it made me think of like, I think one of the worst things you can do to your kids is to put them in an environment in which they're not challenged. Um, because uh, I've, I've seen, I mean, mea culpa, I certainly had a childhood that like, <laughs> I have some bad negative personality traits precisely because I was, bored out of my mind in elementary school and and high school. And uh and I've seen other kids do it. And like it's a hard, it's hard to get out of the bad habits. You get into bad habits when you no one no one's challenging you, you get into really bad habits. Um and you get used to everything being super easy. And as soon as a challenge comes along, you're way more intimidated by it than you should be because you've never actually dealt with a challenge before. Uh so yeah. um yeah you re- that's one of the reasons you really, really need to make sure you've got you're challenging your kids in a way that, you know, they fail sometimes um, and they succeed sometimes, but you, there's, that quies- there's that like balance where they learn to apply themselves. And I, and I think the reason, you know, the communist thing was a joke, but I, I think the reason that I'm harder on someone with high IQ who's sitting on the couch not doing anything with it is not really that they owe society, it's that they owe themselves. Um, they're not going to be happy doing that you will feel unfulfilled if you're not challenging yourself i mean some of the, one of the best things to do for your self esteem is to find a big mountain that a mountain metaphorically that looks intimidating and climb it like there's nothing better for self esteem than doing that and you know if instead of mountains you're putting little pebbles in front of you it's like i'm going to get to the next level on this video game it's like all right well you're not going to be happy you're just setting yourself up for real depression
6: and this, the schools do that. They try to cater to the average or the lowest common denominator. So you get a yeah. class with 20 kids, that's going to happen to the – you know, uh, Dr. Murray in the book brought up the uh, charter schools or the type of schools that just get rid of the disruptive kids. Like the, right. they know how to self-select for people who want to help themselves, children and adults. Like everybody knows how to do that. We can help these people. The ones that don't want to help themselves, I don't know what to do about them either, but – bringing down the kids that do want to help themselves is a terrible way to handle them. The and, and yeah, so a lot of bored kids. I'm, I'm not surprised Carter was bored in school. I was bored in school. A, a lot of my friends, a lot were of bored people in were bored. In yeah. You know, I probably had a friend base that was like, you know, somewhere between average and one standard deviation above average. And we were all bored. I, I mean, for me, and I'm not that high above average, but I got in trouble a lot grammar school and junior high school because I used to always sit with a book underneath those little old desks we had where it had a slot and I would sit and read a book all day I used to read like a book every two days (laughs) grammar school and junior high and you know the teacher would come back and yell at me and I would just say well I can hear what you're doing and read my book like I have no problem doing both these at the same time like I can keep up with what you're doing and read my book what do you what do you mean yeah most teachers would, would go all right I got sent to the principal's office. For it. And I'm not a yep. genius by no means. But the, the way the school was, and my high school was a little better. Then I got to college, went to University of Maryland, went into engineering school the first day. I was like, oh, shit. I guess I'm <laughs> oh. I think I oh, don't yeah. work. like, I was like 12th in my high school class. out yeah. of 300. Then I got to college. And like, I don't think I'm even at the middle of the pack now. Like engineering school, I was like, wow, it was a big eye opening my freshman year.
1: That's like, I, I went no to- longer
6: I was no longer above average, I don't think.
1: I went to a science and math um, school. It's called the Governor's School of South Carolina. And you go and you live there for 11th and 12th grade, and they pick, you know, presumably the best and brightest from all around the state. And the idea is to have this intensive science and math focused, STEM focused uh, boarding school to really, because South Carolina has one of the lowest education uh, rates uh, what are the we have some of the lowest numbers in the country and so a lot of the states with these low numbers have formed these schools they're public schools you don't pay to go but you do have to get in and it was actually it was a lot more rigorous than where I ended up going to college which was Duke um and it was such a humbling eye-opening experience like you said because the public schools weren't challenging and uh, and I lived in such a small town that um uh, I, I wasn't exposed to other people who 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 challenged or humbled me until I went to that until I got to go to that school. And then I was like, oh, I'm not the smartest person in the world. I'm not even close. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm gonna have to work now. I'm gonna have to learn things like how to study and how to do things like, you know, like you said, prepare. And I imagine it's the same for people with uh, musical ability or again or like sports ability if they're not put in a place where they're challenged like can you imagine being someone who's really good at basketball and you're just you're at a school that maybe doesn't have a basketball team or at a school where you're just put in like a gym class with people of average ability and uh or below you know that's k that's not catering to the to to whatever your gift is i i really i really see this as a problem when it comes to again we treat i for some reason we treat iq differently than something like ability in a sport and we you know in new york for example carter and i did a whole episode where they've now started um they they are trying to in some of the public schools um uh, attack gifted programs and to do away with gifted programs because of this idea of like elitism and this misguided idea that if you keep the kids who are a little above average or, or or maybe on the high end that if you keep them in the class with people who are not um, performing at average level, that it's going to help them. But the studies don't show that. The studies show the opposite, that it pulls those kids down and it holds them back and it doesn't actually help to pull up the, the grades of other people.
4: It reminds me what action. Carter started with where he was talking about, it's easy to bring people down, but we don't know how to bring them up. But every, every time we figure out how to at least keep them level, somebody's trying to do the opposite. And, Keith, what you were mentioning earlier about the uh, schools encouraging the gifted, um, I think Dr. Murray in, in the bell curve mentioned that the funding for special education is insanely high as compared to the funding for the gifted, which is like 5%. Of what the funding for the special education is. So why is it such an imbalance and what is it about our culture that we we focus so much on, not that we shouldn't focus on that group, but why is it such an imbalance as compared to helping those who are at that other end? Um, And I think some of the idea is, well, they don't need help. They're already smart. But it's like, you know, they need those challenges. They need to be more than just I'm lucky to have a high
6: IQ. Like yeah. like it's evil to think the high the, the more successful probability ones, they're the ones you should spend more money on if you're using public funds. Like it like the example you brought up. At least the what same Harry talked about. They I would say the same, yeah. Part- the, the goal I would say, is why are you using public
0: thing. funds? There's no
6: such thing as public funds in Moria. I don't know there what you <laughs> Well, the, in the reality, right, with the public school. Yeah, I, I so know. In the, I know. <laughs> in that framework. So what Kerry's saying, like, they actually, their goal isn't to have the smartest kids be super successful. I think the number one goal is to help the kids at the bottom of the rung come up somewhere near average, and they're willing to sacrifice the smart kids for it. It's backwards. I have a right. cousin that teaches in a, in a public school she's a counselor I think it's a like a social sociology degree or something and her job is she gets assigned a kid at the beginning of the year that's like shouldn't even be in the public school probably who's like so far behind and so terrible in so many different ways at, at that level that they need a full-time person to just be with them full-time goes to the class with them takes them aside to like that's a full-time job like I'm flabbergasted like I, and I asked her one time, did they ever think about having a full-time job where you pick the smartest kid in the whole school out and assign somebody full-time to challenge them? Like, like that would be a better thing
0: to do. Right. And if you're going to go after public – I obviously, I reject the public good argument generally, and I understand the fairness argument of applying equal resources. But if you're going to go with the public good argument, uh, your resources should be skewed towards the smarter kids because they will – they're way more likely to produce way more value for society, way and, more. Like exponentially more value. They could go on to cure cancer. That's way more valuable than bringing some kid up who, like, will be able to hold down a job versus having to be on the public dole. Like, that's not a. I mean, if you're going to make that argument, you should be spending. I don't think you should make. I don't think you should make a public good argument. I think public schools shouldn't exist, and we shouldn't be having this discussion because it's up to the parents. But if you're going to have that discussion, they're absolutely doing it the reverse of the way it should be done
6: it's a hypocritical argument, not that it's any like brilliant flash of imagination to point out they're being hypocritical. But yeah. But, but why don't book-
1: they do the same things with something like, let's take music? You know, nobody's attacking give, uh, uh, intensive music programs or, or you know, schools for the ki- kids who are musically gifted.
3: Because it doesn't correlate with IQ. Look at Susan Boyle's case. Um, the lady who had low IQ and got on the British voice and got the contract and made a lot of money. Musical talent is independent of intelligence, so it doesn't feel like you're being unfair. That ability is somewhat randomly sprinkled.
7: Uh,
3: right. I do need to bring up there's a public good argument for the special needs programs because it's expensive to have somebody warehoused in an institution because of. Right mental illness or low intelligence. So a lot of the special needs funding is, the goal is get them enough training when they're young so that they can live with family and function in society instead of $100,000 a year living in an institution for the rest of their lives.
0: Yeah, I'm not arguing, there's not an argument there, but what I'm saying is they're ignoring the upside of the gifted kids, which is is by far more contributing to society. I mean just look at the just look at the uh we talked about the price law or Preto it was price right with the 8020 rule like <laughs> look those gifted kids are gonna do way more to bring up the standard of living for everyone you, you're gonna find likely because IQ does correlate to success very obviously we've talked about it so those gifted kids are more likely to add value to society if that's your argument if it's a public value argument yeah you don't ignore the 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 kids you're talking about, uh, Tamara, like, yeah, you, you, there is value there. You don't want them in institutions. You don't want to spend the money there. Like, there's some work that, that you could probably make an argument for. But uh, at the high end, your your dollar goes way farther. Every dollar spent goes way farther.
6: The only way to make that as the public good argument is to say that the public is responsible for every person. Right. Mm-hmm. It requires denying individualism. Right? right like, everybody's right. Su- responsible for everybody.
0: But we could, someone in chat mentioned John Taylor Gatto, who is one of my like favorite people to read about education. We could just abolish public schools. And then we wouldn't have to have this discussion. And the parent who wanted to spend more resources on their kid, for whatever reason, could do that.
4: Like nice. Little House on the Prairie, just go to a little local little school place and have someone teach our kids or
0: do it yourself. Yeah, yeah or what's, what's happening now? I know, Keith, you were teaching in a homeschooling uh group now because of covid there's these homeschooling collectives that are that are forming um
7: and yeah, i know well, they're one.
0: they're much different than public school i i taught guest taught five classes
6: in a public school this spring and then i uh, last week i taught two classes in a homeschool collaborative like there's a stunning difference in kids in those classes and don't to- collaborative if the if the kids are disruptive they just throw them out like it's no problem you're gone. More?
1: I wanted to talk um, if I could interject now and I wanted to, because we're focusing kind of on some of the, maybe the last third of the book. Um, but I wanted to go back to the beginning of the book where he's talking about sex differences yeah. and yeah. some of the interesting things there, which, which a lot of these things I, I, Correct me if I'm wrong. We've known for a while. It's just that the evidence and the studies are are really making it hard to argue with these things now. Like, for example, that women prefer on average to work with people rather than things and and men prefer to work with things rather than people. On average, again, there's always there's always going to be a spud. What's his name? Uh, web. You know, web. Spud spud web. web. There's always going to be a spud web,
7: Falling but
1: uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so some of that stuff I I um I thought was interesting, especially the point about and and maybe you guys are all familiar with this, especially if you saw the interview we did we did with Dr. Murray. But the the studies that have found that contrary to what you would think, it's it's almost counterintuitive. But in the countries that are more egalitarian like some of the Scandinavian countries, you see a greater amount of these sex differences of things that people, it's almost like in a country where you have ultimate freedom to choose whatever you want to do, regardless of sex, then you start to see some of these differences a little more clearly because women are now choosing to do exactly what they want and men are choosing to do what they want. And so there's actually greater differences between, um, between the sexes in those countries. What did you guys think about that section that
5: was very very interesting i also saw saw that carry and it's like you said counterintuitive right what you would think or what supposedly people think is going to happen and then you go see what happens in a in a place like norway where everybody has freedom to do whatever they want you see the differences in the sexes in what they decide they want to do because for whatever reason obviously in the past women weren't treated as equally as men in certain and, and things right they couldn't vote they you know but we've evolved from then and um i believe women can do anything they want to do to tell you the truth but they have some preferences that are based probably on things that are innate to women like you said and like he was talking about in the book they prefer to deal with people men like to work with things they like to work with uh, you know Mm-hmm. Think as not they're not as good. I can tell. Like if I compare myself to a woman, I know I'm not as good as a woman dealing with others.
1: So you're not an outlier. <laughs> no, I'm not. I I think also it, it I like the part where he was again because we tend to put we tend to put this moral value on differences that we shouldn't. And I like the point he made about how he was giving an example about how men on average are better about um, spatial. You know, yeah, yeah spatial, sp- visual, spatial spatial and visual and and women have on average better memory and he said so for example men and women on average will have different ways of remembering how to get uh, different ways of remembering directions to something. a place yeah so women are more likely to remember locations whereas men are more likely to map out to do a map in their head and i thought that's so fascinating and both work yeah you know it's not like one yeah. is better than the other
0: the other thing about memory that really resonated with me, because I, I, I've i known a lot about the, the sex differences. I had read Bell Curve and read other stuff, so I felt like I was pretty well-versed. But one thing I didn't realize was uh, on the memory thing, and it was great, Carrie, because it felt uh, my wife and I have been noticing this about me, and I was feeling broken because she was like, and I, I had come to this conclusion. I said, you know, I tend to just remember like the essence of something and throw away the details. That's just the way my memory works. And she was like, that's weird. I can't believe your memory works that way. But we've just kind of like gotten used to like, that's the way dad is. Dad remembers the essence of something but throws away the details. And I described it a little bit differently as like I integrate it into my knowledge and then I lose the the concretes and I keep the abstract. But uh, then we read that part and then I was like, oh, that's just what guys do. (laughs) Like, okay, I'm not broken. That's just what guys do on average.
1: <laughs> well, well, social justice is teaching I may also that, be broken. Yeah. that men are broken women, you know, so.
0: <laughs> oh, that's true. I'm still broken. Thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I like the,
6: whole, the whole first section, is like he says, you know, gender is a social construct. That's the premise. Let's check this out. And it's just this beautifully fact-ridden thing filled with numbers and graphs. And you get done, I'm like, yep, that's not true. Like, how can anybody be saying that? This should have like explosive. This should be all over the place. He says the New York Times didn't even review it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it
2: was it, fascinating I got reading
6: it. But... And, and my, my response at the end was just like, yeah, no shit. Like,
0: yeah, yeah, everybody knows this. They just won't admit it. Right. Yeah.
7: <laughs> it's, it's,
0: it's amazing that in 2020, a book like this has to be written. I mean, a book like this would maybe be written anyway based like, hey, FYI, here's the state of the art, the state of the science. Like, okay, that's good. But the fact that it has to be written in such – uh, we're using such language like, hey, everyone, I'm going to make some statements. Carefully. Try to, you know, try not to freak out. <laughs> <laughs> Sexual dimorphism.
6: Yeah, women think that different than men. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Memory is one of them. You
5: know, I, It's very <laughs>
6: – I think it's just yeah. –
5: Men can't have babies. Women can. There's things that are different between men and women. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's hate speech a there, difference. Manny. I don't know. Yeah, right?
4: <laughs> you get
6: banned from Twitter for saying that.
4: <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I, I was really interested in the some of the developmental stuff where there's those two different um, time spans before a young man is even born where testosterone actually starts to change the formation of that person's physiology and their brain and even after birth three months later there's the um i, I think they called it the earlier early puberty early puberty at yeah. yeah, three months so by the time my son was three to four months old he had already had three surges of testosterone two of them in utero one as an infant um and now we have to still explain why men and women may on average have differences in the way we think about things and the way we act. It's like, it's its just so deep, the amount of science that says, no, social constructionism isn't real. Gender is a social construct. No, it—it it is affected by our environment and the manner in which we express ourselves. But for anyone to say that science is real in their house and also say gender is a social construct, and I hear this from really smart people. I've heard this explained to me by someone who had a doctorate in psychology, Um, and child psychology, no less. And to me now knowing all of this stuff and all of the extensive studies for decades, it blows my mind, but it also reminds me how an idea or an ideology can trump all of this stuff and almost turn it into like what John McWhorter is talking about where it's starting to become a religion because you have, this, you have this whole area of your brain, which is not going to be affected by anything that comes into it that's counter to it. Even if you're completely re- realistic and reasonable and smart over here, if it's counter to what that belief system is, it just
0: bounces off. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think I've told this story before, but like years ago, I had this girlfriend who I thought was really smart, but we kind of disagreed on some politics stuff. And what I think the thing that ended the relationship, the major thing was, I had read this book called um, Brain Sex, I think, and it talked about the testosterone in, uh, in, the, in utero and brain configurations. And I made some comment about men and women being different. And uh, now now looking back, she must've gone through like the Carrie Smith indoctrination school thing. I don't know, but she's (laughs) like, I didn't realize what was going on, right? So uh, I made some throwaway comment and we were, I remember we were driving in the car and she let loose with such passion and such anger about gender being a social construct and how evil I was and it was like we were in like the car for like a five-hour car ride and this happened like two hours in so it was really Ugh. uncomfortable the entire rest of the way but like that was it was just this but it it was um she was really even keeled was the kind of person who would normally be really even keeled but I, that was this hot button issue that was just it it was like denial of her god she really really hated that and um I, I don't know. You do see, mm-hmm. you do see it. It's, it's like a religion. It's like a, it's like a form of, um, I don't know, uh, they psychological have, also, dysfunction.
4: Right. Mm-hmm. And they also have a, a, a lot of academic, um, backing for these ideas with a lot of prose and fancy words and books. Right. So it seems like, you know what, why would anyone not believe this? It, it's there's all these books. There's a whole discipline on it. It's like, I don't right, know. they can cite
0: they can cite lots of non scientific acad- academicians to back them up, uh, but
2: back to the blank slate theory of we've said everybody is equally creative, everybody's equally intelligent. Okay, gender is a social construct. so There's not even a male female binary. You're just whatever you want to be this day, and so they've right. taken that to the next thing. Uh, some of this goes back to the Soviet Union and Lysenkoism of. Genetics is forbidden. We're going to say everything's a blank slate, and you can be whatever the, co- the collective educates you to be. So we can have a random lottery, and you're a doctor, you're an engineer, and you're a plumber. I'm I'm an outlier, and that I'm a woman with an industrial engineering degree. And I heard somebody go, "It was so wonderful that half the Soviet half the Soviet engineers were women, and it's only." 20% in industrial engineering and maybe i I'm sorry, 80% went, 80% men in industrial engineering, which is the most people oriented of the engineering fields because you've got ergonomics and industrial psychology. And then for the hard ones like mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, it's like 90-95% men. And I've had people go, well, it's all oppression. Every discrepancy is due to oppression and discrimination. You're not allowed to say that there's discrepancies based on interest or preferences. Uh, and I remember somebody posted a Twitter one from an educational conference, and it was all disparities are due to oppression and discrimination. Any other summary yeah. the data is due to uh, racism, sexism, et cetera. It is immoral to say that women are making different choices with their careers. Based on biology, you have to say it to boost expression. I said, "Yeah." As a woman with an engineering degree who went through the program 20 years ago and worked in the career field, I think I'm perfectly qualified. No, you're brainwashed. I got women in engineering scholarships 25 years ago. I know they were privileging women at that time, and I have the same problems with some of the 3D visualization you're talking about, which is why I. Left mechanical
1: engineering with the three D dynamics, and moved over to industrial engineering. This is I I always imagine that for someone like yourself who's really gifted in this area, that must is extremely condescending, uh, to be put in a position where, where the culture is saying we must see fifty percent of women in this field because that creates an area where you are then devalued and looked at as someone who uh, may be there as a as a benefit of programs that are pushing people who are not motivated to be in that area or who not, are not talented in that specific like i i view it as we've talked about this before but for example i've seen in the science world too there've been there's been this trend lately of of woke men saying, hey, I was gonna be on the science panel, but we didn't have 50% women on the panel. So I'm not gonna be on it now until we get 50% women cause I'm an ally. And it's like that for any woman who now gets added to the panel, it's like, ugh, you're looking at her automatically as well. you're just added because you're a woman and it sucks to be a woman in that position because um, it's, setting up a, it's setting up a society where we are picking people on the basis of sex <laughs>
0: Because the right way to do that will be to say, I identify as a woman now.
1: uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) be Like, hey, this panel's magically 50-50 now.
2: (laughs) I want to see the professional redefinition to say, okay, a configuration analyst, a data analyst, a requirements analyst, which is more of an administrative position, now gets qualified as engineering because of admin support roles tend to be women. So, you count this admin stuff that's semi technical as technical, and woohoo, we've got you know, an extra 10, 15% of our team is uh, female. Yay, diversity. No, you're playing classification games. And just to be clear, I'm very high on the systemic thinking, so I do fit that more interest in things than people, but that makes me an outlier among women.
1: I would like to note. I would like to put in the notes that only a third of the participants in the video call today are women, and it must be due to oppression at unsafe space.
0: <laughs> Make a well, note no, of that. Uh, I've I've asked Thomas to identify as a female today. <laughs> you, you just forgot, Thomas. I,
4: I will Thomas. do whatever it takes for diversity and
0: inclusion. And a female. There, there you I, go. there, oh, there you we go. go. <laughs> yeah, there's a female. <laughs> She's I will listening. identify as a large empty room so that we have uh, gender diversity beyond the two.
4: And That's what I thought. I thought you weren't wearing a tie today so you can identify as something yeah. other than a
6: man. To Carter, have you gotten any takes on your offer to identify as a woman for the purpose of meeting California's requirement for board No. <laughs>
0: Uh, no, I mean, I am on a few boards, but none of the people, uh, care about that requirement. So, and I'm, and I think that's only for publicly traded companies. So no, I've never, I'll put that out there again, though, for any publicly traded company in Silicon Valley, I will identify as a female if you need one for your board to meet the requirements. So, (laughs) hell I'll identify as trans if that's, I mean, you want to go the extra step and show the government you really care.
6: That's two points. You get two points. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um you, you know it, it, I I've got a question is this all uh is this depressing to you or in or inspiring because I don't know on the one hand this this book is depressing because it, I look at how much we're ignoring about the science and I have this view that the more we ignore about facts the the bigger price we'll have to pay later for for ignoring those facts because you know if we had just started listening to facts about this stuff earlier on, it would be incremental and would figure out how to deal with each one that was uncomfortable as we moved along. And, you know, uh, so that's, that's depressing. On the other hand, I really like his optimism about polygenics and the idea that you, that social sciences will not be able to publish, uh, social scientists won't be able to publish anything without citing polygenic factors. And that might force this field to, um, recognize the science to Grips with this hmm? to recognize the science yeah, yeah. or, or maybe they'll just works. the field will disappear and like yeah. there'll be another field that needs to come along and like yeah I, I don't know
4: yeah and i wonder how that works like and i mentioned this earlier like what is the thing that comes along that is there like an inflection point and where everything just breaks because you know this science is moving along and there it sounds from, from what he said and wrote about that they're just kind of keeping their head down and moving along and publishing and um you know there's things that and, and maybe that's what happens to where that stuff i talked about earlier where we can now look at embryos and test of genes and understand where something like that um, brings it into the front of our view where we could no longer deny it but unfortunately if it comes that way, there's so many negative things that can come from being able to choose embryos, not just scientifically, but morally and ethically that that itself can turn into such a huge firestorm. So to your point, instead of incrementally going along and understanding the science, you know, I think we might be setting ourselves up for a big explosion of a problem that we still don't understand.
0: Yeah. I'm one, I'm wondering actually you're, as you're talking um you made me think about I wonder if I wonder if this is actually maybe linked to why there's this this all has come to a head right now maybe the left has an intuitive sense that they need to take control now because their justifications are going to be crumbling um and they like that maybe this is the peak academic justification for <laughs> what they're trying to say. And it's just going to get worse. And so now like they've got to seize the reins of power now or wait a really long time to come up with some other false narrative that can be pushed. Because um, maybe they intuitively see that this is going to have to crumble.
4: Yeah, and I think it,
0: it it's
4: a 2,000, 3,000 year debate between nature and nurture. And it seems like so much of our discussions and disagreements on um, the political aisle have to do whether or not have to do with whether or not there is a nature in humanity. And I think that um, either side has, has things that are important to talk about and that we should listen to, and they have their function. But one thing that I do think that is right on the conservative side is that there is a nature to humanity. And we have to recognize that and build our institutions um, almost like fences. Like, you don't make a fence for a cat the same way you would make a fence for a dog. So when we create these institutions, we have to create them in a way that recognizes that we have a nature. Um, and I think that's what the founders did. And I think that's why they, a lot of people that are further on the left, I wouldn't even put normal liberals in with that. More people further on the left or seem to be pushing against that is because they tend to think in terms away from nature and more towards nurture as if they can shape. And if I can shape, then I should shape. It's morally incumbent on me to shape. So when you have things like genetics getting um, more and more um, advanced and we can link them with so many more things, maybe that's what it is, is pushing back against that um, louder and louder and louder, because that is at the very basis for, I think, what a lot of their underlying fundamental beliefs come
0: from. Maybe they'll just take the war into genetics, though. Maybe they'll be like, oh, it's genetic. Yeah, we still need to, we need to still attack the enemy, but now genetically.
4: Oh, oh that's scary. Like you, someone's <laughs> going to force feed you some genetic change to make sure that you're not. Yep. Oh. Also, oh, you know, that's a movie. We should
0: write it.
3: <laughs> this can also get political, and it's very common for regimes to say, the dissidents are stupid or crazy. And both political sides have said the exact same thing of the other. Well, you had political dissidents in the Soviet Union getting put in mental hospitals if they weren't sent to the gulag. But when you look at China right now, if you want to be a sperm donor, you have to have a high score on the sesame credit system. You don't sesame. just have to have the high g- genetics. You have to have on their social equivalent of the FICO system, but it's also tracking your behavior and your social media behavior and what the local political officer reports in terms of your loyalty. So it's not just you're disease-free, intelligent, and healthy. You also have to be a good loyalist. So if we start going, the dissidents are bad, the dissidents are inferior, well, they've got bad personality traits. We need to correct them genetically or sterilize them or not let them have kids. So instead of the stuff of, well, let's redistribute all the children, uh, there's some social justice where you're saying, well, we ought to just randomly assign children and that way people aren't invested in their own kids, they're just invested in children. Uh, Or let's put all the kids in common centers so that they can all get raised. Now it's, you know, let's just, you know, play the eugenics game and you're sterilizing dissidents. But if you convert and become a, whatever the party in power is, yay, you're allowed kids. So that politicization of eugenics has already happened historically and could easily happen again. But now you could have them say, well, dissidents is socially divisive. They're crazy. They're stupid. Let's eradicate the personality traits that don't fit our
0: ideal mold, yeah, yeah, and we would be naive to think that china wouldn't isn't already thinking along those lines, and, and I'm going-
4: suddenly worried that twenty three of me has my genetic code right <laughs> yes,
1: mine I'm also yeah
4: yeah. I- Sh- shocking shocking to, shocking to me, just like everybody else, I was half black. I, I was, <laughs> I spit into a cup and I was thinking, Oh, I'm gonna have something real cool in there. I was like, no, you're just half black, oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> I never looked again.
1: Uh, I had a, my my only interesting thing was that I, I think I mentioned this the Dr. Mark, but I had a higher than, a slightly higher than average amount of Neanderthal.
4: Yeah, me too. Okay. <laughs> I think that's the understanding of <laughs> Um, I don't
1: well,
6: cool. think you have to. I don't think you have to worry, Thomas, because pretty soon they're going to get in charge, and they're going to make DNA tests illegal, except for the government, just like IQ tests. Mm. Oh, maybe, mm.
0: maybe. I
1: I will say something about what what you're saying about imagining the Cystopian future where maybe they move into genetics and. I think given the opportunity, there are many people in this cult of woke who absolutely would go there. We've already seen that this ideology, if you get deep into it, it can it can change people where it, people, I've seen parents who are definitely putting the belief system above the welfare of their kids. And we see that not only with the kind of parents we've talked about who um, are giddy, and there was one example we gave with a woman who who was giddy and and posting about her two-year-old who had just come out as trans. And it was and and in, in her post, she was ignoring all of these signs from the child that the, the child didn't actually want to change her hair color, her haircut, or her name, or wear boys' clothes. But the mom was kind of pushing her to do all of those things. And people will sacrifice, some people will sacrifice their children at the altar of religion or at the altar of a belief system. And um, we've seen it with the parents who were sharing the New York Times article about how during this pandemic, how white parents should not be sending their kids to these homeschooling pods, like Keith is doing, that they should not be letting their kids, and it's like, really? But your kids learning, I would think, would be at the top of your priority list not what people in your woke cult think about you and but no there were there are people who will pull their kids out of school and will do other things to virtue signal so i, I definitely think if it moves to a place where they're using genetics there will be parents who are like you know it's not fair that some kids are smarter than others i'm gonna t- i'm gonna select for my child to be if less than average intelligence you know <laughs> like
0: yep, yep. Yeah. And they may even like, I don't know, I could see them outlawing natural, I mean, not to get like science, science fiction dystopia, but like, I could see them outlawing natural birth and being like, no, it has to be, it has to be a test tube baby that has the genetic traits that, you know, are okay. And like, you know, we, we want, oh, we want more of this population and less of that population. So mm-hmm. you can have a baby, but we've got to use sperm and egg from these other populations because, uh your genetics are overrepresented. <laughs> like I, I could totally see them playing all there, those games. I
1: yeah. cannot remember the name of the book, Carter, and I'm going to make it a priority to find it now, but cause I've mentioned this before on the show, but there was a book I read over 20 years ago in college in my women's studies courses. And it was a, a book, it was a fiction novel. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was a, basically a feminist fiction utopia. And in the book, all children, It it, it had elements of Brave New World in it, but in the book, all kids were um, created from a diverse selection of of genes, like, and they specifically were looking for uh, racial diversity and they, and they, they were all created in a test tube. And then in this future, supposedly utopian world, in order to raise the child without any bias or without any attachments um, to uh, or any toxic negative effects of being raised by a mother and a father they raised all kids in a little unit of like six people and they selected the six people to be very diverse on immutable characteristics as well it, and i can't remember the name of the book but but it was written as a vision of what things should be it wasn't written it, to it be dystopian. dystopian it was utopian correct whereas brave new world is distinctly dystopian this book was written as like look how beautiful it could be <laughs> I was like, Ugh. <laughs> But I was in the cult at the time. So I was like, this is kind of, this makes sense. Wow, that's
0: beautiful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we should be raising the kids like this.
0: Now you yeah. see it. it's creepy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. No mother yeah. or father.
0: This is why I think just intuitively, this is why the right reacts to things like, it takes a village. Like, yeah we get that more people involved in a kid's life is good, but there's been this sense from the left that they wanted to destroy. This is why they say they're against family values. Like there's been an intuitive and accurate sense that the left has been attacking the family for a long time. And that's been true. Um, when Hillary Clinton said that it takes the village to raise a child, the half of that, that she can say publicly is, well, we need more support structures for people and beyond just the family. Fine but the other half of that is actually we don't want the families at all we we, we want the support structures to raise the kids that's the, i mean that's what and that's what the communist nations did and it's all because of the tabula rasa starting point it's all well we want the the proletariat needs to be engineered appropriately and we can engineer them that way and maybe as soon as they realize that genetics are necessary they'll quit being deniers of genetic science and just embrace it and start using it
6: once it's in their that's faith, scary. they have to believe it. I mean, this book, it, it brings it out. You asked the question about, you know, was it a downer or depressing? Like, to me, it wasn't. It was just provides irrefutable evidence. Like, if somebody says to me now, genders a social construct, I, I would say, well, how come a neurologist can examine an MRI of a human brain and tell with a 90% accuracy if it's male or female?
4: Like, yeah, and Dr. Like, Deborah So's book, she went through that, and I think there is one um, study that was done in Nature where somebody said you can't really do it and she goes into the technical reasons why they said they couldn't and that was so popular it was shared so many times it was in referenced in so many magazines and articles and on tv and in the media but they don't say that there were four studies after that that said, oh, no, she, this person did it wrong and this is why they did it wrong. And we can actually predict it anywhere between 60 and 90%, depending on the study that we've looked at and we're getting better and better. Um, so yeah, over and over and over again, I keep finding all this scientific evidence by actual scientists, not, you know, whoever else, prose, prose artists, that are saying, no, we know, we're going to keep moving, here it is, and I felt the same way like Keith did, where it's one more book that I've been able to read and look at some of the science and feel more confident in what I understand and um, see in the world. So if and when I have to come face to face with it, I can calmly and gently dissect
0: it. Any final comments? I think we should wrap it up probably soon. I think we're, we were going pretty long. Anyone else have any final words they want to say about this book before we we call it a day?
6: I would say let's just summarize it. So the first three sections, the first one, is gender a social construct? No. And he provides it. is race a social construct? No. Is class a social construct? No. And he provides the facts. He proves it with numbers there's not even any
0: opinion in the first three sections. No, it's very Although, conservative and like in very carefully written. That's the part Right, that but the it's not exclusively
1: made. a social construct. I mean, right. if he does talk about environment plays a role.
6: Fifth, like with IQ for example, he said right now it's roughly 50-50 in success. He's saying IQ is the right. it, but no, it's not all of it. But the question <clears throat> is is it
0: none of it? That's what the claim mm. the the social construct idolatry. means it's none of it's nothing else none
4: of it right, right. especially That's with weird. the the race thing and i actually wanted to talk about that but you guys did a pretty good job of talking about it on the interview to where you know i've read a couple other books talking about race being a social construct and i understand that idea to where there's a certain time in history where people differentiated race um for whatever reason usually having to do with superiority and slavery and i understand that and that makes sense but there is also a difference in populations. And I think the best example he gave was, let's say we're gonna, let's say unsafe space, get some people together and we're gonna colonize um, Carter's Utopia. The fact that we all get on a plane, once we get on a plane and we separate ourselves from the rest of humanity, we in ourselves, that group itself is genetically different from the population we just left so when you do that with a group of people over several generations you know we're going to be genetically different in some sense how big of a difference it is and how whether or not it matters um, for iq or personality traits and things like that it's probably very small but i get like anything else at the tail ends it may make a difference so even though race is a social construct in some ways that we talk about it we are genetically different There are higher rates of different types of diseases, whether it comes from, I think it was um, certain types of Alzheimer's or MS in certain Mm -hmm. European nations, um, sickle cell anemia with a lot of African-Americans. So we know there are differences and it's important that we are okay with understanding those differences because if those differences we understand at a genetic level with genetic medicine, we may be missing out on curing a disease for a population of people we're trying to protect by lying about the fact that they're different. He
6: mm-hmm. yep. said it could yeah. become malpractice to not consider that. Right, like A physician to not consider your DNA, because- uh, I think it already is, is for that. certain
0: things. Like I think it already is malpractice for certain things. Like if if you're just like, well, didn't you know the incidence of just, let's say, what's the one that Ashkenazi Jews have, uh, I don't remember, but there's like a high incident of particular disease. It, it, no, no, it's a disease, key. Uh, but like, if you, I think if you're a doctor and you're just like, well, I didn't consider that as a factor at all. I think they would be like, well, but you knew this person was an Ashkenazi Jew. Like that should have been a factor. Like, there's you should have yeah. considered that. You should have given that weight. That's a known. That's a known high. In, there's a, there's known high incidences of this. Maybe maybe an example I could also use would be sickle cell uh, anemia, right, for that um, uh, people of African descent. Like, okay. If you're just going to be like, well, I'm just going to look at the general, you know, I looked, I looked, I'm in an Asian community, and the the rates of sickle cell amenia are, uh, anemia are really low here, so I'm not going to consider that at all when this person of African descent walks in. It's like, well, but but there's different <laughs> susceptibility there. You, you you have to, you have to.
1: This is um, the same thing with sex. When a lot of the hospitals now are, well, not a lot, but I know it's happened at a few. I had a friend who. Um, was working at Harvard Medical School to indoctrinate medical students into essentially into social justice ideology. And one of the things she was, something, an accomplishment she was celebrating online was a hospital that had decided it was no longer going to put the sex on your medical bracelet, male or female. They weren't gonna include it. And it's like, well, you kind of need to know that for some things, like for example, the trans man who biological woman who showed up at the hospital and was pregnant and they, they didn't diagnose her, him, you know, whatever. They didn't diagnose her her because she didn't tell them she was a biological woman or he, he didn't tell him he was, that he was a biological woman. So it's, those things are. And her uh, baby died. Yes. right, And her baby died. I didn't, I'd never heard about that. That's horrible. Mm. Went to the hospital
6: for stomach pains.
1: Yeah, right. and they try. they were trying I'm a man,
0: day. I've got stomach pains, so they didn't look for a pregnancy, because, yeah. And the baby died.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So. Um, well, to end now,
1: it on that note.
0: On a downer. Yeah, <laughs> Banks, <whatever. laughs> and right. the baby died. Carrie, save us. <laughs> Save us, Carrie. <laughs> no,
1: <go. laughs> I just, I was going to say one thing I liked about this book is because you were asking, me well, if it leaves you depressed or not. It doesn't leave me depressed at all. I, I think one of the things he said about it in interviews is that he hopes that we will be able to get to a place where we look at, we're, we're able to look at facts and statistics and studies again and say, oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
0: Instead no, of saying, uh, instead I, of saying,
1: getting outraged good. or reading some kind of implied morality into it or some superior or whatever that um that you just look at it you know like this is interesting and it that it sparks a curiosity and and um in you and maybe maybe books like this one good thing i'll say with this is we're in a place where someone like charles murray has become uh, so maligned and tarred and you know called awful things that maybe maybe it would be considered taboo to read a book like this and maybe it'll it'll make something that kids might otherwise find boring, like statistics kind of cool and fun. Like, I'm reading this secret statistics well, maybe. book,
7: you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's see. I did, I, I will admit, I offered a false dichotomy. I said, does it make you depressed or encouraged or whatever I said but uh, I I had the same experience I was like oh this is super interesting and I generally get encouraged by super interesting so I'm kind of like oh this is good like we're learning a lot that's that's great so I'm not I'm not at all depressed by the book I just uh, yeah I'm depressed at the new um, I'm frustrated that they're ignoring it uh and to me that's such a telling thing. it's like oh they, they have so no arguments against it that they literally need to pretend it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Like, that's 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 uh, that's scary. But um. there are people who will be depressed by this when they find out because
6: they don't want to believe this is true. Right. But right. I'm never depressed by the truth. Usually sometimes I take a little while to get over it, but yeah I was gonna say I, well, I wish I could say I was never
0: be. depressed by the truth but I am sometimes well,
6: long long term I get over it. that's what I'm yeah saying. fair enough for
0: <laughs> yeah all right well um I think we should probably wrap it up on that note thank you everyone for joining uh really appreciate the uh the conversation um and uh yeah what's the next book book is uh screw tape letters by uh, cs Lewis and I, that's in about a month. Let me see if I even have it on my calendar. I think I do. It's on the 18th. It's a short book. So it's on the 18th of October. So slightly less than a month. Uh, we'll be doing a book club for uh, screw tape letters. So if you want to join that, you can. And um, thank you all as usual uh, for joining. And um, we will see you. I don't know. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks guys. Thanks everyone. Thanks. See you there.
7: Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. I have calculated a 96.9% chance that their ideas violate YouTube's hate speech policy. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Marxism is mostly peaceful. Mostly. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.